Hello there, and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes, and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In previous episodes, we've heard about the Battle of Manticurt and the fall of Byzantium within the space of 10 years, from superpower to superweak. We've heard how the dynamic Byzantine emperor, Alexius Komnenus, begged the Pope to save Byzantium from the Turks. We'll now hear how this led to the First Crusade, one of the most extraordinary military expeditions in history. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. The First Crusade began on a cold, wintry day on the 27th of November 1095 in a field outside the city of Clermont in southern France. Pope Urban II delivered a passionate sermon that set the Christian West alight with crusading fervour. No record of his exact words has survived, but we know that the main subject he spoke of was the need to liberate the Eastern Christians, as he called the Byzantines, from the brutal subjugation of the Turks. Although his exhortation went beyond recovering the land lost to the Seljuks to reconquer the Holy Land and even the sacred city of Jerusalem lost nearly 500 years ago to the Arabs, the emphasis was first and foremost on saving the Byzantines from rape, pillage and slaughter by the Turks, as this account of his alleged words shows, quote, a race absolutely alien to God has invaded the land of the Christians has reduced the people with sword, rapine and flame, and they cut open the navels of those whom they choose to torment with loathsome death, tear out their most vital organs and tie them to a stake, drag them around and flog them before killing them as they lie on the ground with all their entrails out. What shall I say of the appalling violation of women of which it is more evil to speak than to keep silent?" His sermon was the highlight of a grand ecclesiastical council that he had called to reform the corrupt Latin church. Urban wanted to find a cause to re-establish papal authority in a world that was increasingly questioning the role of the medieval church. That cause would be a holy war. Urban's words hit home. Within weeks, they became the talk of Europe and unleashed an extraordinary mix of emotions, beliefs and hopes that persuaded well over 100,000 men and women to leave their homes for what must have seemed a crazily wild adventure in lands about which the vast majority had no experience or understanding. One of the most unexpected aspects of the First Crusade was its broad appeal across the whole social spectrum of medieval Europe. It was a genuine people's movement. Without the participation of the monarchies of Germany, France and England, in the second half of 1096, thousands of men, women and even whole families drawn from across Europe set out for the East. Two entirely separate crusading movements converged on Constantinople. The first was the so-called People's Crusade, 
And the second was a huge feudal army led by some of the greatest of the European nobility. The first to reach Constantinople in the summer of 1096 was the People's Crusade, of which Peter the Hermit was the main leader. The Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenus was appalled at the sight of this when it appeared before the walls of Constantinople. It was the exact opposite of what he'd hoped for. Instead of a disciplined military force, such as Robert of Flanders's 500 knights, he looked in horror at a huge rabble of peasants with a sprinkling of knights. Inspired by preachers such as Peter the Hermit, this mob is best remembered for the extreme brutality with which it massacred German and French Jews before setting out for Byzantium in what has been called the First Holocaust. Alexius ferried this rabble across the Bosphorus as quickly as possible, in spite of the People's Crusade having perhaps a thousand knights and a few thousand foot soldiers, when it advanced on the Turkish stronghold of Nicaea, it was annihilated by Kilij Arslan's Turkish warriors, peppering the mass of peasants with arrows before charging home with swords and maces. The slaughter was on such a scale that a Frankish observer later recorded that the corpses of these very first crusaders were so numerous that they created, quote, I will not say a mighty ridge or hill or peak, but a mountain so huge was the mass of bones, end quote. However, the second wave of crusaders was quite different. It consisted of the feudal armies of some of the greatest nobles in Europe. The most important of these were Raymond of Toulouse, Godfrey of Bouillon, Baldwin of Boulogne, Hugh of Vermandois, Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders, and Stephen of Blois. This overwhelmingly Frankish army was joined by the battle-hardened Normans of southern Italy, who were to play a crucial role in the crusade, led by Bohemond of Taranto and Tancred of Hauteville. The whole force is estimated to have numbered at least 80,000 people, of whom probably over half were knights and foot soldiers, with the rest non-combatants since most of the crusaders travelled with their wives, families and retainers. This was exactly the type of force which Alexius had been hoping for, although the sheer size of it far exceeded his expectations. Nevertheless, he saw his opportunity and seized it, organising excellent logistical support for the huge numbers that poured into the western provinces. He showered the Frankish nobility with gifts and required them to swear oaths of allegiance to him. Impressed by the size and splendour of Constantinople, the Franks and even Byzantium's former enemies, the Normans, who had been fighting Alexius only ten years earlier, accepted his authority. Indeed, overawed by Constantinople, one crusader remarked, quote, Oh, what a noble and beautiful city is Constantinople. How many monasteries and palaces it contains, constructed with wonderful skill. It would take too long to describe all the wealth that is there of every kind, of gold, of silver, all types of clothes and holy relics, end quote. The first target for the Crusaders was Nicaea. This was Kilij Arslan's capital and had of course been the third city of Byzantium after Constantinople and Antioch. 
But the problem was not just Kilij Arslan's Turkmen army, but the city walls, which were second only to those of Constantinople. Five kilometres long and punctuated with a hundred towers as well as a double ditch, they were almost impregnable, as one Frank wrote, quote, skilful men had enclosed Nicaea with such lofty walls that the city feared neither the attack of enemies nor the force of any machine, end quote. However, the sheer size of the Crusader army impressed the Turks. Kilij Arslan felt forced to travel east to gather a larger force to face the Crusaders, and in May 1097, he returned. Advancing out of the hills to the south of Nicaea, thousands of Turkish cavalry poured towards the Crusaders. Based on their experience of the People's Crusade and the weak Byzantine forces they'd faced, the Turks were fairly contemptuous of the Frankish knights and charged the first group of crusaders they met head-on. These were Raymond of Toulouse's knights. But the Provençal knights held their ground and when Bohemond's Normans charged the Turks in the flank, the Turks broke and retreated. Although this wasn't a decisive victory and Kilij Arslan retreated with the bulk of his forces intact, it marked a new beginning. The Crusaders were clearly a force to be reckoned with. But taking Nicaea was more difficult. The siege dragged on into June. Its walls were impossible to scale, and although the Crusaders tried to dig tunnels underneath them, hoping to cause their collapse through sapping operations, these attempts failed. Starving the city into submission seemed to be the only solution. But there was a major obstacle to this. The western edge of the city bordered the great Ascanian Lake, allowing the Turks to ferry supplies into the city in small boats. The lake was too large to be patrolled, and anyway the Crusaders had no boats, so the siege looked set to last for many more months. And in the meantime, news reached the Crusaders that Kilij Arslan was organising a huge Turkmen army, recruited from across the whole of Anatolia, to relieve the city. Some of the Crusaders started to wonder whether the Crusade would end at Nicaea. However, on the Byzantine side, the Emperor Alexius had not been idle. Recovering Nicaea was central to his aim to recover at least part of Anatolia from the Turks, and to achieve this, he came up with one of his most resourceful stratagems. This was a plan to haul Byzantine boats 20 miles overland from the coast to the Ascanian Lake. This allowed the small Byzantine army that accompanied the great host of crusaders to launch an attack on the unprotected lakeside of the city. Before this, Alexius's general, Manuel Batumites, had secretly sent envoys into Nicaea to start negotiations with the Turks, guaranteeing their safety if they surrendered. It should be remembered that the majority of its inhabitants were Greek-speaking Byzantines who wanted not just to return the city to the empire, but to save themselves from the inevitable 
pillage of the city and slaughter of at least some of its inhabitants should the crusaders break through the walls. Therefore, they managed to smuggle Alexius's general, Manuel Botumites, into the city with a crucible, which was a document signed by the emperor in gold letters, promising the Turkish garrison not only safe passage, but even a reward of money if they surrendered the city. The Turks agreed, and Alexius sent the small fleet of Byzantine ships across the lake to the city walls. The Turks surrendered to the Byzantine soldiers, disembarking from their ships. Alexius, worried that his secret agreement with the Turks might meet with the Crusaders' disapproval, even staged a mock attack on the walls facing the lake where his troops had landed. A Byzantine standard was soon raised on these walls as the Crusaders were independently attacking the landward walls, and to the sound of trumpets and horns, the city was proclaimed captured by the emperor. The capture of Nicaea was a triumph for Alexius. But for the Crusaders, it was only the very beginning of their expedition. Jerusalem still lay over a thousand miles away, deep within Seljuk Turkish territory. And Kilij Arslan was hurrying towards Nicaea with a large army of Turkmen. The Crusaders were about to have to fight a major pitched battle against the Turks if they were to proceed any further in Anatolia. But Alexius was anything if not cunning, and he wanted the Crusaders to continue to rid Anatolia of the Turks. So he held a council of war with them and advised them to march across Anatolia to recapture the other great city of the Byzantine East, Antioch, which was, of course, on the route to Jerusalem. Not only would the recapture of Antioch be a huge gain for him, but just as importantly as the Crusaders advanced across Anatolia, they would draw the Turks away from the eastern Aegean, allowing him to launch his long-awaited offensive to recover the islands and cities on the coast that had fallen to the dangerous Turkish emir Chaka, based at Smyrna. Indeed, this strategy was to prove remarkably successful, and Smyrna, Ephesus, and all the towns and islands in the eastern Aegean were recaptured by the Byzantines in the course of 1097-8. But Alexius made one crucial mistake. He underestimated the potential of the Crusaders. After recapturing Nicaea, he didn't want to risk sending troops with them and only dispatched his most trusted general called Tatitius with them to help in choosing the best route and securing provisions. One of the biggest challenges facing the Crusaders was logistics, given the sheer size of the Crusader army, which still numbered over 70,000 people, maybe half of whom were non-combatants. Since such a large force needed to live off the land, it was decided to split it into two. It was just the opportunity the Turks had been waiting for. All the Normans from both Sicily and France, together with some of the French knights, moved together in one group led by Beaumont, Robert of Normandy and Stephen of Blois. 
while the main army of Frankish knights, led by Godfrey of Bouillon and Robert of Flanders, formed a separate column. The two armies agreed to meet at the now disused Byzantine military base at Dorylaeon in Phrygia. But little did they know the Turkish scouts were watching their every movement. Bohemond reached Dorylaeon on the 30th of June and set up camp waiting for the Franks to join him. He was held in high respect by the Crusaders and even the Byzantines were in awe of their erstwhile enemy as Anna Komnena recorded, quote, Bohemond's appearance was, to put it briefly, unlike that of any other man seen in those days in the Roman world, whether Greek or barbarian. The sight of him inspired admiration, the mention of his name, terror. End quote. On the morning of the 1st of July, a few hours after dawn, a huge number of Turkish horsemen came into view. One eyewitness said there were 360,000 of them, but this is obviously a wild exaggeration. Nevertheless, the Turkmen army probably approached almost the size of that commanded by Alp Arslan at Mansikert, numbering up to perhaps 30,000. Facing it stood less than half of the Crusader army, some 15,000 Norman knights and foot soldiers. Kilage Arslan launched a brutal attack against the Normans as they hurried to form a battle line. One of Beaumont's soldiers recorded that, quote, the Turks began all at once to howl and gabble and shout, saying with loud voices in their own language some devilish words which I did not understand, screaming like demons, end quote. It was Beaumont's finest hour, as medieval minstrels would sing for centuries to come. He was everywhere organising the defence. The Normans fell back to a nearby stream and Beaumont kept his soldiers in a tight formation around it. He grouped the foot soldiers and knights together, ordering the knights not to break ranks and charge the Turks. Crossbowmen picked off the Turkmen cavalry. Behind the mass of heavily armed knights and infantry, he set up a camp where all the women and children were grouped, tending to the wounded and bringing water from a nearby stream to the soldiers in the front line. The Normans were battle-hardened veterans and probably the finest soldiers in Europe. They resolutely faced wave after wave of Turkish horsemen. While some of the Turks tried to hack their way through the Norman line, the majority turned round, releasing their arrows and riding off. But the Normans didn't break formation. The dense mass of Norman infantry and knights stood firm while crossbowmen and archers shot the Turkish horsemen down. For half a day, the Turks surged against the mass of Normans until a small group broke through into the Norman camp. One crusader recalled the panic of the non-combatants, quote, The Turks burst into the camp in strength, striking with arrows from their horn bows, killing pilgrim foot soldiers, girls, women, infants and old people, sparing no one on grounds of age. Stunned and terrified by the cruelty of this most hideous killing, girls who were delicate and very nobly born were hastening to get themselves dressed up, offering themselves to the Turks so that at least roused and appeased by love of their beauty, the Turks might learn to pity their prisoners. End quote. 
But the Turkish attack was beaten off. In desperation, Bohemond sent messenger after messenger to the Second Crusader army, asking it to come to their rescue. Eventually, as the Turks were preparing for the attack, they hoped would finally break the weary Normans. The French Crusaders arrived. A mass of French knights charged the Turks in the flank. At the same time, the papal legate, Bishop Adhemar of Le Puy, led a group of Provençal knights round the back of the mass of Turkish horsemen. Like most bishops, he came of knightly stock and could understand a battlefield. Raising his sword, he charged into the back of the Turkish army. The Turks, attacked on all sides, broke and fled in panic. Bohemond's Normans surged forward. Even the fast Turkish ponies couldn't get their riders away fast enough from the crusaders' swords. The Turks were slaughtered as they fled. Their camp was captured. Kilij Arslan escaped, humiliated and defeated. As a Norman soldier recorded, quote, The Turks fled very fast to their camp, but they were not allowed to stay there long, so they continued their flight, and we pursued them, killing them for a whole day. End quote. While the Crusaders had won a resounding victory, they were still impressed with the Turks' courage, as one Crusader recounted, quote, You could not find stronger or braver or more skillful soldiers than the Turks. End quote. The Battle of Dorylaeon marked a turning point. For the first time, the might of the Seljuk Turks had been stopped in its tracks. The Crusaders had come of age. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere. Indeed, for listeners in the UK and the US, I'll send you a free copy of the audiobook of the Byzantine World War if you leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Just email me on byzantiumandthecrusades at gmail.com. And I'll send you back the code to download your free audiobook. Couldn't be simpler. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the Crusaders got on as they marched into the heartland of Islam. <laughs>